0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Six Before Breakfast, the podcast of the ICD for those who make a living by being creative and talented or manage and coach those who do. Visit us online at our LinkedIn and Facebook channels, join our community of interest to see, hear more from like-minded people and meet some friends you do not know yet. My name is Anthony Eldridge-Rogers and today I'm talking to Stephen Burt. Stephen is a coach, author, improviser and musician and creativity is at the heart of his practice. He maintains his clients need to get creative in order to find novel solutions and discover underused parts of themselves. His book, The Art of Listening in Coaching and Mentoring is a go-to for anyone wishing to improve their skills as a coach. When he is not coaching people, he can be found writing his next book or creating improvised shows with others or playing in a band. In our conversation, we explore issues such as having a tribe, but the benefit of working with strangers, playing jazz, the joy of improv comedy, the importance of having side projects, being creative in the civil service, and other topics. Now, let's meet Stephen Burt. All right. So, welcome to Six Before Breakfast. Today, my guest is Stephen Burt. Welcome, Stephen. Good morning, Anthony. Well, just before we started, I found out what you have for breakfast, so I won't ask you to recount that again. But um, what what I'd like to do is, you know, throw you the ball and have us give your introduction about yourself as a human being, as a coach, as a, a teacher, as a, whatever you describe yourself as. So who is Stephen Burt? Okay.
1: Okay. Um- what I who am I now? I think is the place to start and then I can sort of work backwards if that's okay. Um, I professionally, I am a business coach or coach within organizations, mostly around leadership. and I also run programs which are designed to help people develop their leadership in a variety of ways and linked to that i write i speak i run workshops and so on and if you like it that's that's the um, that's the stuff side of me that might put a suit on a, a, a appropriate times but alongside that i've got a grown up family um, and a longtime partner and i spend quite a lot of my time doing um improvised comedy both as a learner and as a performer and i have in recent times but not so much at the moment spent quite a lot of time playing playing jazz um right i'm a jazz guitarist and um and i do other stuff as well but those are the main things that that take my time and both give and demand energy from me at the moment.
0: Okay, so how did you get here?
1: How did I get here? Well, I've been professionally working as a coach and facilitator teacher for 20 years. I started doing that because I had a chance to do a coaching qualification um, while I was working for the uh, UK government as a civil servant. It wasn't because I wanted to become a coach. It was because I thought coaching skills of listening, inquiry, curiosity, empowerment, and so on could be useful to me as a leader. And they certainly were. But I found that um, they I got totally fascinated by that. I discovered at the same time that people actually make a living doing that sort of thing. And so I said goodbye to the civil service, um, amazed my colleagues that I wasn't hanging around for the pension, and set up my own business as a coach. Um, I'd been a civil servant for about 12 years, so I joined um, mid-career, having done other things. Um, Before that, I was a um, researcher and consultant working in a couple of uh, UK local authorities, and before that i did a doctorate and before that i was a maths teacher in a couple of secondary schools and that's i think the the potted cv so i suppose the, the the big picture is i've made four or five significant career changes and the sense of them i make looking back is it's always been a combination of desire and opportunity when what i'm doing is no longer quite cutting it for me, and I start to get itchy feet, and I'm scanning around, and something comes up which, for some reason, attracts me and looks possible. And at that point, it's not that I'm reckless; I do I'm quite careful about <laughs> managing the risks associated with those jumps. Okay. But nevertheless, it's something I notice I've not, now done about four times.
0: This podcast, as you know, is about creativity. When when I asked you to come on here and have that conversation. You got quite excited about it. If you think back through those different iterations of yourself, at what point would you have, if I'd met you in one of those stages, at what point would you have said creativity was really important to you?
1: I think it's relatively recent for me that I've applied that label to what I do. And I think that's partly about the impact of, playing jazz and doing improv and bringing lessons from those, plus in the case of improv, sometimes some games and techniques into my professional practice. So I think it is relatively recent for me. However, with the benefit of hindsight, what I notice is that in all the things I've done, curiosity has been a big thing for me. Pushing against boundaries, and um, also pushing against authority. So it was quite a curious thing for me to become a civil servant. But that really was about my curiosity about the political process and about how things worked if you, if you were right at the center of the political process, working with ministers and, and so on. One of the things as well I noticed then was that, and it may be apparent to people outside, being a civil servant, policymaking can appear really bland and boring and sort of quite right. staid. Imagine yeah. it's, you know, sort of eight hours a day tea breaks and five minutes work. Well, it's, it's not. it's anything but that, because it moves at a ferocious pace. It's, it's driven by um, the politics of the moment. And there were times in my career as a civil servant where I was asked to come up with an idea for the Secretary of State or even for the Prime Minister that was going to be announced within a couple of days. And you just had to do it. And it may the, explain to your listeners why some policy seems a bit half-cocked. But <laughs> right. really, right. the creativity yeah. within, those, within those parameters, you know, come up with an idea, think about the risk, test it, work it up as best you can, and then help ministers communicate it in as, as credible way as possible. Mm. So mm. There, there's a, a creative process within what appears to be quite a staid and conservative arena.
0: And that, and that's because we only see the sort of front end delivery, isn't it, as as the general public? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I uh, absolutely I, I was interested. I mean, also we only see it uh, as strained through the political perspective that is is trying to present that idea that you've come up with. Were you ever at a conflict with yourself about that when you were asked to come up with ideas that you weren't entirely sure you wanted to come up with? If that makes sense, nothing nothing major because sort of integrity
1: is really, really important value to me. And I work for both Conservative and Labour governments. I have a strong preference for one of those over the other.
0: Oh, um, come on. But, <laughs> <I'm>, but <laughs> okay, I won't know, put it on I, the spot. I've always,
1: I've all, well, you can. I've always been sort of left of centre, um, and that that is part of my sort of critical approach to the status quo. Um, but I'm also not a, I'm not a great joiner of things, and I think one of the things that bedevils our politics is that there's not much collaborative creativity or conversations about creating new options. It's very, it's very um, tribal. And I think that is, that is one being tribal or being within a particular way of thinking is one of the things that gets in the way of creativity.
0: We probably might come back to this later because I think it's a fascinating thing, but there is also this question mark around the relationship between ethics and creativity because creativity isn't sort of political, is it? As a function.
1: I don't think it is, but I think certainly for me, boundaries, ways of creating something like you know, respecting and acknowledging the work of people that's fed into your work, where you can identify it. I think that's an important sort of ethical stance because certain, in so many areas of creative activity, examples abound of people stealing each other's ideas and dressing them up as their own. And often the ones who've come up with the ideas are the least powerful. And so it's actually an exercise of power to take someone's ideas and not credit them. And I think that's an unethical behavior. So I think it's, you know, I think it, it is interesting. And it's particularly, co- it can be difficult, especially when you collaborate around creative enterprises.
0: I, Picasso famously said, um, you know, creativity and is, is stealing ideas from other people, um, as opposed to copying them,
1: yes, but certainly ter- in terms of my own professional practice, um, I mean I, I I have in the past done done work not a lot, but I've done work for um oil and gas companies. Why did I do that? I guess it was a time when the focus on their contribution to the climate crisis was 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 less strong, although I would think I was aware then. Um, however, the work I was doing was with some of their people, um, helping them be better leaders, helping them be more self-aware. Um, and it's quite a conflict because what they do, ultimately, I don't regard as positive. But... While they're working there, if they can lead with more humanity and more skill, then then I think that is is something um, worth supporting and worth enabling. I think the line for me now, um, I think I would I would think a lot harder about working for oil and gas. I've long known that I wouldn't work for tobacco. I wouldn't work for um, in the arms industry. Um, I'm sure there's still people there who would benefit from being led better. But nevertheless, you know, it's, it's where I draw the line. I think as well, for me, it's, it's vital that I feel that an organisation I work with treats its people okay and at least have some sort of um, stance on key social issues. I've recently started, I'm about to start doing some work for a big financial institution. And on paper, I thought, wow, you know, do I want to work with these guys? But I looked on um, Glassdoor, um, I, I looked at various other reviews and looked at what they said about themselves and the evidence to support it. And I got the sense that the culture of the organization is one that I would be very happy to work with. There are some financial institutions where the culture is such that things like um, equality, respect, um, not only um, acknowledging but harnessing diversity, being inclusive, they're just not on the agenda. And I think I would find it very hard to do my type of work in those organisations.
0: It's difficult, isn't it, when you think about the impact you're having because it's very difficult to know what impact you're actually having in an organisation over time, isn't it? When you go and work with a leader, for instance, yeah. you can't really tell, can you, at, at that point, how your intervention or association is going to play out. Have you ever looked back and thought, mm, with, with hindsight, I wish I hadn't done that with that organisation? Or are, is the jury still out for you?
1: Um, the odd one or two. I mean, it's one of the things about when you work for- for yourself or your freelance or, or whatever you want to call it, in one way or another, you have to put out into the into the world stuff about yourself and what you do and what you offer. And I've found over the last twenty years I, I'm constantly reworking that. And one of the things this is an aside in a way, but one of the things I'm reworking it is is not only to describe what I do, but also what I want to do in order to create the work that I is calling to me then. But what I find is that because of what I say about what I do, I tend to attract people, certainly as individual clients, who want to work with someone like me. Um, the feedback I get is they, they, I mean, I'm pretty plain speaking, I'm very pragmatic, I'm pretty creative, I'm comfortable with going deep, but I don't need to unless it's really relevant. And I have some values around leadership. They build from what the individual brings, helping them become their best leader. And it's definitely not signing up to some sort of command and control approach. So the people I get, I think, are the ones who are trying to be empowering but strong and high-achieving leaders when there aren't really many templates out there. So we have a sort of ethical fit.
0: What is the Stephen Burt... Definition of leadership, then? How would you describe a good, effective leader that you would follow?
1: I think it's someone who creates the environment in which others can perform, achieve, and be true to their values. So it's very much about enabling things like, you know, what's the vision? Uh, What are our priorities? Um, how do we do things around here? What does good look like? All this stuff enables people to find their way and perform. And then you create enough space, and it's different for different people, so that people can what, – what, what, what I love seeing most is when someone performs and they surprise themselves. And that's what I like to see. Um, and the leaders I've worked with, who I really respected, have created an environment in which that's happened to me. You know, when, you, when you, you do something, you not only think that was great, you think, you know, I really didn't know I
0: could do that. Do you think that good leaders evoke leadership in the people who they're leading?
1: I do. I think good leadership is about not always having to lead. You know, if you are a really good leader, then you create the spaces in which individuals and groups can be creative. They can exercise leadership in terms of thought or energy or initiative or innovation. You know, you create an environment in which people both have the appetite and the permission to do something that only they can do in that, well, not only there, but they are well-placed to do in that moment.
0: Yeah, I, I like very much your description of enabling, you know. Um, enabling is you know, often got negative con- connotations for certain context but but not in this it enabling other people to build their potential perhaps or find their potential and and so on
1: I was just going to say in a way it's 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 not rocket science it's it's so much of it just flows from treating people with humanity and then adding the professional things that they need in order to find the way in whatever the environment is but it's just because it's relatively simple doesn't mean it's easy or common
0: I mean, do you think context matters? I mean, because I'm thinking that, you know, there are so many different perspectives on leadership in terms of the mission that's involved in leadership. So for instance, at corporates, you know, the mission is building the business, whatever the, the company's goals are, but presumably it's driven around shareholder value, employee satisfaction, customers, all those kinds of things. But then in other environments, we have, you know, obviously military leaders, leadership for other kinds of purposes, perhaps causes and so on. Do you think those the principles you've laid out there apply across all those contexts or do you think it changes?
1: I think, you know, it's like coaching an individual. The specifics always change. But the challenge of being a leader, I think, has got more in common across organisations, you might think. And I have coached some military people. And what I've been struck by is, I mean, without stereotyping, I would say these were modern military leaders. To some extent, they are the leaders that the military recognizes now that they need. One of the things that certainly in the the UK that I think some military organizations have found is that society and culture has moved on to such a degree that young people even if they join are less likely simply to do as they're told without some sort of rationale you know you, even the military needs to win hearts and minds of the people that they are leading and one of my clients talked to me about something i think she called them the, the rules of war or something but the the first of those was about clarity of purpose what's the mission but the second was look after your people you know, and the, I remember a leader I heard, this is about 25 years ago, and he was a very senior military person. And he was talking, he, t- he talked about two things that stayed with me. One, he said, leadership is lonely. You can't show your vulnerability too much. Ultimately, the buck does stop with you sometimes and you get senior enough and there's just one of you. The other thing he said was with the people that he leads, I think he was asked about, well, you know, he was being positive about looking after them, and someone said, but what happens if you don't like somebody? And he says, you don't have to like them, you just have to love them. (laughs) And I thought that's, you know, from a military, and he was... um,
0: He used the L word.
1: uh, uh, (laughs) Sir, Sir Donald Duck, you know, Sir General Donald Duck, or whatever he was, you know, very, very senior guy. And I think, wow, that's amazing. Um, and that has been reinforced with the work I've done with with military people for all their hard-nosed um, approach to getting things done. That's right at the heart of what they
0: do. Can we segue to Jazz and your, yeah. Well, because I'm trying to just get all the pieces on the table for our listener who might leave us quite soon. So. How far back does your relationship to jazz go um, and that and creativity, improv that you mentioned? Tell us about that.
1: Um, I've always been into music. For the older listener, back as far as prog rock and whatever in sort of late, late 70s, jazz. My first exposure to jazz was my uncle had a massive... Jazz vinyl collection, and I would listen to some of his stuff. Um, my mother was in, really into people like Ella Fitzgerald and, and so on, more sort of vocal jazz. So it's been around for a while. But I, I discovered it almost by accident as a player because I've been playing rock and blues. And that's okay, but unless the, the standard thing in rock and blues is, particularly in rock, is you play covers. And with a few notable exceptions, no one ever sounds like the original. So, trying to play a cover is, is it's, it's a bit like trying to get hundred percent in an exam. The best you can do is just about pass.
0: Everyone yeah. who knows the track is disappointed. But mostly,
1: what you yeah. Do, yeah, yeah yeah mostly what you do, you miss yeah. the mark. The thing about jazz is it it, it there is there are some um, signature and really noticeable recordings and performances of jazz standards, but by and large, you can do what you want with them. And that's one of the things that was so liberating for me because um, as a musician, I'm not great at learning other people's music anyway. Um, And studying someone else's solo, it's a bit ironic anyway, because they made it up on the spot probably. And then it's been transcribed and now you're trying to learn it and make it sound like it was when it was created in the moment. So it's not a great way to go anyway. But the thing about jazz is it, 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 it creates a permissive environment in which... You, you know, you you really, really learn the song, you work hard on any difficult bits, but then you create spaces within which each of the players in the band could well be improvising for 16 bars, 12 bars, 32 bars, whatever. And so it's this combination of structure and creativity that I noticed, well, it's not only wonderful because you do have rules, it's not I know some people play incredibly free jazz. That's not for me. But if you're playing something as standard as fly me to the moon or a misbehaving or whatever, you can, you can still do really unusual and surprising things with it. I mean, I bring a certain sort of rock and blues sensibility to how I play. Um, And it's. I don't know, it's it's permissive, it's liberating, and it also, I think it creates a different dynamic within a band because it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, whoever the jazz musician was, who said, if you make a mistake, just do it again. Um, That that is so different to trying to do rock covers or or whatever. And I also discovered that I'd finished playing something and I might think, oh, I messed up here or I messed up there. Talk to my bandmates and they said, sort of didn't yeah. notice. Sounded great to us. Yeah, do it again. And so this it, it is it is far more, as I said, permissive, liberating, and it's far more collegiate mm. as well, because in order in order to put I mean, it's only the level I'm at. In order to play a good rock cover, you have to nail the music. In order to play a good jazz song, you need to communicate with the rest mm. of the band. And so that you need to you need to know the music, but you need to internalise it so it's not heady. Mm. Whereas rock is, to, in my experience, too much of the time was trying to remember stuff. Mm. Whereas jazz is about expression,
0: mm. and, and and of course, tell, so, yeah, an improv, of course, has has a lot of those characteristics as well, hasn't it?
1: Well, I was asked recently by a client who I. Very senior, very serious client, and who I just told that when I wasn't working with him, I was on the stage being silly and doing improv. He said, "Well, why did you do it?" And he said, "In a word, why did you do it?" I said, Mm -hmm. "Freedom." And that's that's what it is about. It's it's mistakes are not only um, allowed; they're expected, and often they're the source of creativity and. You know, if you mis- make a mistake, then that could well become the signature, the, the you know the running joke, the theme through a scene, and so it's it enables me and you know, others who do it to not always, not hundred percent, but get very close to forgetting about getting it getting mm. it right, and it's also that I unless you do solo improv, which I think is an entirely different skill, you're always on stage with somebody else. So you're, you're bouncing ideas off of them. And sometimes, I mean, if you have, have a scene where you've got an, a, an idea from someone in the audience, sometimes I'll walk on stage first with something that that idea is prompted in my head. And sometimes I'll walk on stage with nothing or certainly not anything verbal. I might just walk on stage with an attitude or a physicality or a facial expression. And I don't know what it means, but that's what I'm going with and someone will join me and they'll tell me mm. what it means. Or they'll respond to it and between us over a few minutes, we'll establish what we're doing, why we're there, who we are, what we feel about each other and we'll start to have an idea of what the arc of the scene is going to be. And that is all that comes from whatever we have experienced and whatever we hold. And you just discover what's relevant and what's resonant. Yeah.
0: But, 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 but Stephen, listen, you know, you're, you're making this sound easy now, now <laughs> just a moment here because to most people um the idea of stepping out onto a stage in front of an audience with no script with no sort of real map with no not even a thought into your head as to what's going to happen next is kind of the most terrifying thought um that, that they could have you know it's it's up there with you know public speaking yeah. but the, your yours is oh we're going to put you go out there and make a speech and we won't tell you what to talk about; just make it all up on the spot, right? So, I, I know uh, from experience. My, my wife's an actress, and I, I've got some experience as well. Um, I, I know that it sounds easy. What I'm interested in is uh, can you can you pull apart a little bit here? What is actually going on? What are you actually leaning into a, as a as a human being in that moment? What cl- you know cluster of skills or I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, um, you know the, you know what I mean. What what are you doing? Yeah, I think. I
1: mean, I've been doing this for about sort of five years, and so I'm still. I mean, there's lots. Of, there's people around who've been doing it four or five times that amount, or even more, um, and they are awesome. Um, but what, what what I notice is over that time, um, I have built my belief in myself and in the people that I play with that it will be okay. It's sort of confidence, but its I don't
0: think Does it's it quite trust
1: the right word. Trust. it trust? Def- yeah, it's trusting myself and trusting the others. Um, there's a little bit of, well, if it all crashes and burns, well, we, we get up and do the next one. And certainly, even though it's painful, one of the things I've been told by my experienced players is that unless you crash and burn, you you don't know where your scale of achievement starts. You know, you need to know what a zero feels like or something down there. Um, But one of the things I've noticed about improv teachers is in the main, they are very good at creating within a group and therefore, and also for individuals, a sort of scaffolding of support. That is just enough for you to do the next thing. So one of the one of the things in a sort of introductory course that you might do is get up on stage, and I've done this, and it's really interesting. Get up on stage and you sit next to somebody, and someone gives you a word, maybe from the group watching, and the task is simply to chat about what that word means to you. Um, Listen to the other person. Don't try and do a turn. Don't need to be funny. Just have a conversation in front of others. And so you you take the pressure off. And one of the mantras early on in the first course I did was, well, two things. Um, One is, um, I've got your back. And that's something you would say to each other before you go up and perform. But the other is, um, you don't have to be quick. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be funny. So it's it's it permission, you know, it, it's, and I think in, as you do more and more, you internalize that. Um, you stop trying so hard. You, you trust your gut, your instinct just to respond, your brain gets out of the way. Um, You stop trying to make things up and you just allow yourself as an experienced human being with so much stowed somewhere in your head, in your gut, in your heart, in your shoulders, to respond in the moment. Not as an actor, but as a human being who just happens to be in a rather weird circumstance at that time.
0: Yeah. And, and what you're saying is you're removing the expectations on a person. Sounds like we are.
1: That. And I think one of the reasons why, no, I it sounds like one that, of the reasons yeah. why I wanted to, yeah, why I wanted to do it apart from the fun and the creativity is that as a coach, I can get, a bit trapped in mm. my head and overthink stuff. And I thought I need something that enables me to um, get out of the way of my intuition, my physical awareness, um, my human connection. Um, and improv does that for me as well as being huge mm. fun.
0: One of the things that I've noticed uh, in coaching young creative people is that what they often trip up over is this whole desire to be approved of and to be liked and what you're sort of pointing to is that you can actually remove that from a situation to some extent i don't know if you can remove it completely but but if you can dial it down that allows people to move to a different way of being That's the aspiration. Mm.
1: Yeah. And I think what you said about it being hard, um, if you screw up a scene on stage, then you come off and, or I do, and I've talked to other people about this and he goes, shit, mm-hmm. shit, 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 shit. <laughs> you know, I wish, I wish, mm. I wish. You know, how could I, on all this stuff. Um, and so it's, I think it's human to rerun a bit and, but the more it's I think it's like other areas of practice the more you do the more if you think about the the good enough versus the stuff you're a bit embarrassed about if you've done enough good enough, then the balance is okay and one of the things I think that as an improviser and I think this is the same for me as a coach and facilitator that's really important for me is to notice when I do good work really enjoy it if I want to notice how I've done good work partly so that I can draw on that and build on it and replicate if need be but also for when the times I do less good work I know that's my behavior on the Mm. day rather than Mm. who I am and I think that that's so so important and it's it's I do work with, often with my clients around perspective, you, you know, great that you, great that you're self-aware, it's okay, you're self-critical, it's great you're high aspiring, mm. but don't let that get in the way of valuing yourself and all you've mm. done, you know, put, use it positively so that next, you know, next time the likelihood of messing up is, you know, is yeah. is is um yeah. is lower.
0: Huh. Learn how much it. of your how much yeah. of your experience of jazz improvisation do you think you has sort of worked its way into the coaching practice that you have?
1: I think what I said earlier about improvisation within structure is it is, is a good enough definition of coaching yeah. actually. Um Structure in terms of contracting, you know, how are we going to work together, how long we got and all that sort of thing. Structure a bit in terms of goal setting and maybe process. Um, but beyond that, what I love about coaching is I got, haven't got a clue mm. what's mm. going to happen. And I notice that in jazz, if I improvise with things that I've prepared, It's okay, but a bit flat. With coaching, if someone tells me they have an issue that I think I know how to coach, and therefore I have an idea about how our conversation is gonna go, then I can easily miss some obvious stuff that would have taken us in a different direction. So letting go of of assumptions, and as an improviser, uh, when it comes to uh, to improv or, or jazz, um, I, I try to start with, uh, you know, the old, um, yes, Zen the thing mind. about, you know, if you mm. want to learn, carry an yeah. empty cup, um, uh, absolutely that. And what I notice in, in jazz at my best, I try stuff. So I'll, I'll try a, a, a fill. I'll try a short motif. um, see how it sounds, see mm. how band members respond. Mm. If they respond well to it, then I'll embellish, I'll bring it back, I'll try mm. it again. If they don't seem to notice it, I might try again just to see what happens, but I might just yeah. move on, yeah. you know? Um, and I think that, that that mindset of experimentation, of mm. trying things, for me as a coach, is really important because I think when, when you start coaching for lots and lots of good reasons, you think it's all about questions, um, open questions that allow encourage the, other, the your client to think. Um, don't get in the way. It's not about you. Or oh, I think all this is true, but I notice after twenty years' experience as a coach, I am far more intuitive. I will, I will put possibilities on the table. If I notice something, uh, I'll say, I will say, I'm wondering if there's something about this mm-hmm. going on. And if they pick it up and say, "Yeah, that's really interesting," because whatever, and if they look at me blankly and or say, um, "Can you explain that mm-hmm. a bit more?" then I maybe I've missed the mm-hmm. target. But it's it's important in jazz and in coaching to be fully committed to what you mm-hmm. offer. I'm
0: willing to let it go immediately yes I, 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 yeah the word that was coming to my mind as you were saying that was non-attachment it's sort of this idea of not being attached to the thing that you put out you know uh in um there's another word i don't know if you've he- ever heard of it it's uh, used in relation to young children and education it's called strewing and um when you strew you put things in the environment that children are in and just to see if they're interested in them. So you might leave a book open about rocket ships, or you might eat, you know, leave a box of crystals, or you might just, you know, play a bit of music or something. And then the child either sort of goes, "Oh, that's interesting," and, and shows some curiosity, or they just walk past it, or they pick it up and put it down. And I, when you were saying that, I was uh, was thinking about that that process with with children. And it's similar, isn't it? In coaching, it's it's putting something out into the space to see what happens next and, you know, yeah. either it just floats off down a river or, or, or you know, everyone sort of gathers around it and has a good look. Um,
1: yeah, I didn't know that word. Um, but, yes, I remember that from my children. Um, it's, I think it's the positive or one of the positive intentions, I think, behind parents exposing their kids to lots and lots of different things like you know the the bally hockey mountain climbing tiddlywinks or whatever that take up the whole of your Mm. weekend when your child is smaller
0: one of the most successful things uh, i ever did for my children i bought a book i think it's called something like 501 interesting facts and i left it in the in the bathroom by the loo and um, my daughter started reading it. <laughs> and every time they went to the bathroom, they'd come back out with some strange fact, you know, about you know history or something like that. Um, uh, or none of which they would have been remotely interested if I tried to teach them. So there is this yeah. whole axis, isn't there, in, in coaching and in jazz and, and in improv as well. The common thing seems to be this, this looseness if you like this ability to be to flex with everything that's it's hard yeah. to learn isn't it no i think
1: well it's i think in in each area alongside the learning there's quite a i mean i'm not sure quite the, what well, the right word is i'm It's sort of unlearning or letting go of some pattern behaviours and ways of thinking, which may well serve well in other areas or other times, um, but which really get in the way. Um, It's often quite useful to know where a conversation or a bit of work is going. What's the outcome going to be? What's it going to look like? Then we can work towards it. I do some goal setting and coaching but beyond that I don't know I don't know what's going to come out and letting go of needing to know what's going to happen next letting go of will this work at all because it might not you know so it's really getting comfortable with some things which are really or become counter counterintuitive I think one of the ironies is that um trying stuff without knowing where it's gonna go or even what it's for is something that children do very well. You could put something in their space and you think it's I don't know, um, a, a cardboard box <laughs> or or whatever, but for them it's a yeah. spaceship, a doghouse. Yeah. It's yeah. you know, it could be just so yeah. many things. Um and I think that as we get schooled and as we get convinced that we understand more about the, around the world around us and how it works, our patterns of thinking and responding become more yeah. patterned, you know, more, more, uh, more set and less curious, less open, less responsive. I think to play good jazz, to improvise on stage and to be a good coach, you have to let go a lot of yeah. that stuff
0: do you find that sometimes your clients come in with very clear objectives and you know i I want to get to such and such a place with my you know business or my project or you know perhaps they're under pressure from shareholders and that kind of thing how do you balance this out with with what might be quite a strong need that they have to to get to a goal of some kind and they want you to help them get there. How how do you kind of put those two things together and not get sort of sucked into just trying to find the answer to the goal? Um,
1: I think it's really important to accept that that is their best shot at communicating what they currently need and want and to, in a sense, accept it, but also get really curious about it. So this is what you want for your business, so why? What will that give you? What's the driver for that? What's your? What are the drivers, you know, what are the attractions of that? But what are you trying to solve or move away from in order to, you know, in order yeah, that drives you towards what you've just described as your goal, um, what, what will it give you? And just to explore it, because my experience of coaching clients is that they may have already made some assumptions about what's going to work or what they need. They may, t- may stand up to scrutiny, but they might not. Or there may be some underlying needs which could be met in a different way. So I, I I see it as my role to help them get really clear about the why, and then to have a broader range of possibilities in terms of the what and the how. And then if they still want the thing they said they wanted when we first met, great. We've done some good good check in. Um, but my experience is that. Simply standing back from what they feel or think that they need or want, at minimum, will help them get greater clarity about what that's really about. And that will serve them when they think about, well, how do I do
0: that? Would it be fair to say that you are inviting them to think about meaning and purpose?
1: Sometimes, um, often, I mean, to different degrees, some come very much with that on their agenda. My experience is that often people come with quite transactional Mm -hmm. goals. Um, And I want to get promoted, to which really, I'll be slightly more gentle about it than... this but really my first question is well why right um what's what's that going to give you and that very soon is into into things about potentially into things about validation um achieving potential could be social contribution it could be so many different things um and i i find that if people want that sort of outcome goal without having thought about meaning and purpose, they may find that they achieved their goal and it's not what they hoped mm. it would be. The number of people, you know, just on a simple level, the number of people I've seen who have achieved their promotion and ended up in a job they like less than the one that they were in before. And then they think, well, why did I want this then?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's quite a common thing, isn't it? People not really, you know, once they get there going, oh, uh, this isn't really what I wanted. Of course, the question is, what happens then? You know, do they... Because sometimes I think that people just, I, I had a friend once who once told me, he said, when my business is worth a million pounds, you know, I'm going to retire, and this was a while back. And I, I bumped into him, and he—and I said to him, oh, so, uh, I said, th- is your business? And he said, no, yeah, yes, yeah. no, no, we passed a million pounds, but no, it's two, you know. And it went on like that for years, you know. He just kept moving the number uh, up, the scale, because yeah. it wasn't really the money he wanted. So Yeah. No, I mean,
1: I think it's really important and, you know, sort of outcomes, outcome goals, you know, money or or whatever, they they can be really important. But I think, you know, I wouldn't impose this on my clients, but my, my belief is, you know, it's it's sort of cliche, but life is short. Um, Why not do the things that work for you? today rather than deliver something you want in mm. 10 years i'm all i'm all for you know envisaging what you want to create and working towards some goals but i'm involved in projects at the moment the the outcome of which could be really really good but i'm not having as much fun as i need to have and so i'm i'm being difficult with my colleagues there about how do we have more fun yeah. here? Because um, this this needs to be, we need to enjoy being together and doing the yeah. work we're doing. Um, and there's partly, you know, the sort of luxury of being being older. Um, but it's real. It's also realizing, you know, it's that having fun, and being creative, um, gives me energy. Mm. It's what keeps me working? I, you know, I could retire if I wanted to. Um, I don't really want to because I don't know what I'd do, but I also don't want to because I'm still doing things, you know, across the range of things that engage me that really give me energy. And that, that means I can do other stuff. I've got more energy for my friends and family and, and so on because they're feeding me. Um, but I don't, I think most, too, too many jobs are people experience them principally as an energy drain, and then they have to do other things if they're wise, but often they don't, to find their energy to replenish their, mm-hmm. their stock. But I, a lot of the work I do with my clients is it's not only about meaning and purpose, it's about what energizes you. What you care about, um, what what makes you know what makes the day not only bearable but you know enjoyable, yeah. um, and how what can you do to increase that percentage?
0: So, what do you think creativity? Well, actually, let's do something else first. Give me the Stephen definition of creativity. What what is it? Because a lot of people have a lot of different takes on what it means. So. What is it to you, us, to define it?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's really... I think before, before I try to answer that, I think one thing I'd say is that creativity can happen just about anywhere. Um, And I think some people regard themselves as creative and a lot of people don't. My experience of coaching is that a lot of people who don't regard themselves as creative nevertheless do things which involve creativity. Um, They are innovative gardeners. They run a choir. They customise old motorbikes. They You know, it's just they they knit without pattern. You know, they they crochet. I don't know cricket matches, including or in you know, people just do crazy stuff and still say that they're not they're not or surprising stuff and still say that they're not creative. So that's I think so. I would say creativity is I wouldn't say necessarily universal. But it is a it's a it's a it's a human muscle that pretty much everybody has somewhere, even if they don't currently use it. And, and I think it, it is. Well, I was sorry. going to
0: say, why do you think we have this divide? which we definitely exist culturally between, you know, creative people and non-creative people. There's, you, know, and, uh, you know, you meet people, so oh, I haven't got a creative bone in my body kind of thing. So yeah. what, where did that come from, do you think? I think some of it is
1: about um, labelling as we grow up. And it's only the people who have so much creativity that you just cannot stop them get shuffled into being artists, musicians and whatever. Some people don't quite have that amount, but they keep enough alive that it blooms once this once the school system is no longer constraining them. And I think with a lot of people, it's less apparent or it comes out in different ways that are that are not Endorsed or encouraged, so they develop a story about themselves that they're not creating. Do you
0: think it comes from the stifling of curiosity uh, in children, perhaps, and and the way that we we sort of tend to the the system, if you like, tries to direct them around sort of pre decided pathways. Is it is it that
1: I, I think it's I think it is that I think it's also that in many. If you think about school subjects, in many many areas, um, we teach them as a body mm. of knowledge rather than as a creative right. enterprise. Talk to or read about the work of top scientists and their work. I still haven't answered your question about what creativity is, but by you know, by any definition, yeah. is creative. They're looking mm. to find new ways of thinking, new ways of discovering stuff they are experimenting you know in whatever it is they are they they are bringing into the world something whether physical or intellectual that didn't exist before so and the the degree of creativity may vary you know some examples of i mean i think it's really interesting if you look at Sciences and whatever, where there is a body of knowledge, because I mean, there's the famous Newton quote, where praised for coming up with his mechanics. He said, "If I can, if I can see further, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants." You know, in other words, it's the, the the body of work and the body of knowledge that had gone before directly supported him in making some insights and bringing things together in a way which hadn't, even though I think that at the same time he was doing that, um, I forget my my history, but I think maybe, I wanna say Leibniz, but that may well be wrong, was doing some of the same stuff at the same time. Um, There's also stories about when Einstein came up with relativity. A lot of the building blocks were out there, but he brought them together in a way that no one had done before. He made sense of stuff that others were struggling to make, that others Mm. regarded as contradictory or irreconcilable. And so scientists and science is a creative enterprise. That's a a really
0: important point, isn't it? Because uh, one of the problems is that there's this perception, particularly in in schools and colleges, that you're doing, you know, humanities and creators are over here and that science is over here and somehow they're not joined up. It, uh, in in the sense of creativity sits across them all. And that, yeah, that's yeah. one of the problems. I mean, I, I'm also minded to, the you know, I'm, I'm very keen on um, the history of tinkering as well, um, because the history of the Industrial Revolution and the development, if you start looking into the development of, you know, all sorts of things, the plough, the steam engine, the thing, what you actually see is a long process of tinkering, people coming along and changing something that already exists and seeing something that that perhaps somebody else hadn't seen making an adjustment and suddenly it becomes something new and that's an important part of it as well isn't it that's uh...
1: yeah i think i mean in answer to your question you know i do think it is about you know as i said bringing something into the world that wasn't there before um Often it's about working within some sort of some sort of community of practice or sort of professional practice or, or whatever. Um, but that that is a, an idea, and you say about tinkering. Well, there's there's tinkering, there's repurposing, there's innovation there's creativity, there's moments Mm. of genius. All of these things, I don't know, I I suspect they exist on some sort of spectrum or in some sort of two-dimensional space. But we, as so often we do when we talk about it, all we do is set up this sort of bipolar opposition between creative and not creative. And I just don't
0: think it's like that. No, that's right. So, and, Um, and I mean, I think also that's one of the reasons why Pushing back against this idea of nicheification, putting everything in niches, uh, you, you know, this evening. You know, if you're professional, you know, become a coach, you can go and do coach training. People say, "This say you at the end." So, what's your niche? You know, as uh, you know, you've got to get in a box and stick a label on it and say, "I do this and I don't do anything else." And I think that that's part of the problem as well, yeah. isn't it? Because everything is connected. I th-
1: it's. I mean, into the marketing terms and in terms of the ability to talk about your own practice, it's I think it's quite useful to be able to say, this is what I do or this is who I work with. Um, more and more, I talk about what brings me alive, and that's sort of my niche. But part of my niche includes stuff that I've never done before because that's fun. So it's, you know, I think you need to be careful with it. And it's it's also once, if you have a narrow niche, then it's very, very hard to avoid it becoming sort of codified. And there's endless courses you can go on about the processes and models of people that come up. that will tell you exactly how to coach someone on whatever. And those can be useful. However... I think that takes the the life, the creativity, and the human connection out mm-hmm. of it because, you know, essentially, I reg, I, I regard coaching as a, a, a sort of co-creation. Two people come together, and they work some stuff out together that neither, neither of them had before, and to the benefit of the client, but how... I think if, certainly for me, I mean, I, I, you know, it may work for others. I know when I constrain myself in that way, I get a bit bored and I don't do my best work and I might fail to really connect with the other
0: person. Um, Stephen, let's just hit pause here. It's, I've just seen we've been going for an hour. Do you want to get that coffee now?
1: Thank you. What came to me in my coffee break was about the importance of cross-fertilization. It came out of you talking about niches and how a niche, in a sense, is can be a, a barrier to cross-fertilization. One of my beliefs and one of my, my experiences is that cross-fertilization in the sense of being exposed to ideas, practices, way of looking at the world and so on that aren't your usual thing is, is, an es- is certainly for me, it's an essential part of me being creative. The ideas that, that act as the linchpins of what I write are when I've gone and done something, nothing to do with coaching or improv and something is just connected in my mind And it's given me a different way of thinking or talking about something I care about in my own practice. Or I've just seen somebody else's reflections on their practice. And they've given me a quote, which makes so much sense and is a different way of talking about something I've been struggling to talk about.
0: It's the benefit of the other, isn't it? It's when you you have two things that are the same, there's a sort of loss of the ability to make comparisons, I think. Somebody once said to me, they said, Listen, if you if you had to go to a workshop, would you like would you prefer to go to a workshop where everyone was a coach, say? Or would you prefer to go to a workshop where, you know, there were a couple of coaches, a couple of engineers, a couple of that, you know and I immediately said, Well I'd go to the I personally would say, take me to the one with all these different people in it. And so it's presented often as a sort of a universal good that you should be with your tribe or whatever that tribe is you know coaches or jazz musicians or whatever and there is a benefit in that but then there's also what you're pointing to is there's a real value in being with the things you're unfamiliar the people you're unfamiliar with
1: yeah no absolutely and it's It's for stimulation. If you're with people who do different stuff to you, if you're talking about what you each do, you have to be so much clearer than if you're talking to someone who already knows what you're talking about. And that in itself is so useful in terms of the the quality of thinking it requires. And that's apart from the interesting stuff that the other person might say that lodges somewhere in... Well it does in my brain, and either I'll make a connection immediately or at some point I'll drag it out and it will be a missing piece in the you know, something some sort of jigsaw I'm trying to make.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting as well, isn't it? Because there's a paradox at play here and as well, isn't there? Because what you're simultaneously sort of saying is there's a benefit in not knowing. So not knowing is good because when we don't know, we don't overlay prior information do we 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 don't say we know we say i don't know so we're curious we want to find out and but there's also a benefit in knowing having information and it's how you pass that not knowing knowing in your relationships with what you're interacting with whether it's your clients or um you know the people it's like going into play i guess you know do you play in a regular band do you have a a regular group of musicians you play with
1: not at the moment No, we have a uh, lockdown and so on sort
0: of got in the way but you normally play with a, with a band
1: i was un- un- until a couple of years ago my 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 jazz practice has rather tailed off in recent times it's on the list about how to find some right. more energy more opportunity so, and your
0: your jazz guitar i'm not sure you, about jazz guitar yeah yeah so anyone yeah. happens to be listening <laughs> wants to play some jazz <laughs> yeah
1: anyone happens to be listening um southeast South East london area i want to play some cool blues <laughs> influence jazz yeah okay. yeah
0: right. give me a call so um but what i was where i was headed with that was really this idea of of are we more interested in playing all the time with people that we don't play with or are we more interested in playing with people we've never played with you know which which is both of which presents uh different experiences, doesn't it?
1: I mean if I think about improv, think about jazz, and also I do some work as a facilitator with others on leadership programs where we're working in tandem some of the time. I think if you find some people that you can work well with and create well with, then that's gold dust. You know, hang on to it for dear life. And there's learning in playing and working with people who work quite differently to you because you'll probably learn even if it's uncomfortable. So, I mean, that's what guides me to push myself to be exposed to new things, to try new things. One time a few years ago, I went and played as part of a big band, jazz band. Not really for me, but it was really interesting to be part of such a big ensemble and what it requires in terms of discipline and so on but at least I know now that that's not something that I want to be part of my
0: practice. So that's useful as well. There's a real usefulness, isn't there, in sort of breaking the continuity of things, whether that's a group of people. I mean, there was a band, I can't remember who it was, I was uh, was reading about a band recently and they they were doing really well. And then I think the drummer died and they had to get a new drummer in and it completely changed the direction of the band because he brought in new thinking and new ideas and and new songs and, and so on. So we're back at the paradox, aren't we? In one hand, there's a real benefit in continuity and similarity, but we, something gets lost if you stay there too long.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, there's lots of ways of sort of squaring that circle, but one of them that I actively do is that I nurture side projects. They may be with people I've collaborated with before, they may be on my own, but they could well be with new people. And there, it's an experiment. Let's try this out. Let's see if it's got legs. Do we, do we enjoy it? Uh, do we like each other? <laughs> Those sorts of things. Invest a certain amount, but not too much. And it's not in place of the stuff that's already working that you want to keep on. It's, it's alongside. And it may grow. It may become the work. But you don't know until you try. There's a writer who may well know, Alex Cleon, who um, write, writes on creativity. And going back to the Picasso quote, one of his first book is called Steel Like an Artist, and he talks about the power of the side project, and that's something I'm, I'm, I do. I've constantly got things that I'm putting out there, trying a little bit, see if it goes anywhere, uh, and see if it's successful. I
0: suppose side projects don't have they don't have pressure in them, do they? In the same way?
1: No, I think they need to be managed well. I think you need to be hard nosed about whether they are going anywhere. Hard nosed view about how much time and energy I'm going to put in, and if, from time to time I'll stand back and say. What do I think? How's this going? Carry on. Let it keep ticking over or or pull out.
0: One of the themes that, that has been running in the back of my mind since we've been talking has been that pretty much everything that you've proposed as interesting ground to explore as a coach or as a creative, maybe I'm making this up so you can tell me if you agree with me, but... Is, is this sort of idea that you're willing to willing to initially be uncomfortable. You're willing to take a risk. You described getting up on the stage and in, there is that uncomfortable moment, isn't there, where it's it's starting. You've got enough confidence to start, but it's still not comfortable. You don't get up there and say, oh, this is, uh, you know, I'm totally at ease. There's a tension, isn't there? There's a, you know, anticipation. And, and I think a lot of what people describe as their happy place is actually really another way of describing the place where they don't have to confront being uncomfortable.
1: I think being being willing to be, to to work through your discomfort, your fear, the anxiety, whatever it might be, I think is really important. The, The mindset of, okay, let's try this. I sometimes say things to my clients, which when I Playing them back to myself afterwards, I think, my God, did I really say that? I can give you an example. One time I was working with someone who was talking about the challenge of managing a really difficult team, very, very bright people in it, but pretty prima donna behavior. And he talked me through how he was going to pull them together and what he was going to say and how he's going to communicate their expectations of them, how he was going to communicate his expectations of them. And I noticed as he spoke about it that his body language shift, he spoke he made stronger eye contact, his voice was more resonant and stronger, and he was really embodying the belief in himself to do this. And almost as an afterthought, he said, you know, a friend of mine's a really good facilitator. I could get them to come in and manage it with me. And he slumped a bit. And I said, Hmm, interesting. Can I tell you how that idea landed with me? He said, yeah, okay. And I, I said, cop out, which about is about as brutally <laughs> frank as I can be. And I did do a little intake of breath before I gave that feedback. But how it landed with him was, and he brought his head up again. He said, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess you're right. <laughs> and so, you know, but there was that moment of taking a risk. I would have been disappointed in myself having had the thought that that was a possible type of response if I hadn't right. given it. And my intention was absolutely to support him and to help him to face up to the choice he was about to make. In a sense, I didn't care what he chose, but I, I had a strong feel for that this was important for him. So how could I support him? Well, let's paint this decision as starkly as possible. Well, that's
0: true. It's, it's true anyway, isn't it? I think in coaching and mentoring generally is how useful are you actually going to be if you just become the yes guy? You know, I mean, if it becomes about saying what your clients want to hear or, or stepping away from uncomfortable spots, you're not really in service of the whole of them, are you? You're just trying to keep a client going.
1: No, indeed. It, it, it's it's being courageous in service of the client. You know, in jazz, it's being courageous in the service of the music and of your bandmates. In improv, it's being creative in the service of, uh, of a good scene or supporting somebody else. And there is also, one, alongside the discomfort, this is for me, it may not be for everything, everybody else, but there is a thrill mm. that comes with the sense mm. of danger. This may mm. not work. I can think of one time in improv where we were doing a show and it was scenes from a hat where people put suggestions on a piece of paper and it goes in the hat. Another person stepped onto stage and pulled something out of the hat and it said, Formula One, the musical. (laughs) And this guy was on stage and the rest of us were in the wings and I did not think twice. I stepped onto the stage and we performed Formula One, the musical. I think it's probably the first time they've ever sung in public, but just the, the, I mean, I feel it now, the sheer thrill of doing something so ridiculously outrageous uh, as that. I think what you said, you know, along, you know, earlier and along the way about how scary performing in public and working, doing things that might not work can be. It really helps if alongside that, you can tap into the the, the thrill, the sense of being alive that comes with that.
0: Well, and what what really excites me and draws me to anything live, really, is it drags you, kicking and screaming sometimes, into the present moment. Because it's very hard to be making up Formula One, the musical, and thinking about next week's Tesco shop, right? I mean, it's, you know, or what's going to happen after the show. You are in the present moment, aren't you?
1: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. It is all about that moment, the connection with the people you're on stage with. At that point, the only thing I was attending to is, okay, how do we craft the chorus, you know, or whatever. And it's total absorption. And that's something which resonates with some of the things that you can get from mindfulness in the sense of wholeheartedness, You know, I am doing nothing else other than what I am doing in this instant.
0: Uh, One of the words that's used to describe it, of course, uh, is flow, which we haven't touched on in this, but I think we've sort of been talking about it. We just haven't put that word on it.
1: And flow and the, and the, the immediate feedback, the satisfaction, the absorption, the sense of rightness, all of that, I think is one of the things that I seek and value and comes when you are being courageous, when I am being courageously creative.
0: So, Stephen, I'm aware we don't have that much time of your time left. Before we close out, is there any topic you quickly want to throw in there?
1: I think that creativity is often a social and collaborative activity. And that's why what I said about cross-fertilization is so, so important If you want to go into the research in it, there's lots of research around invention and creativity in in science, about how the physicist is stuck forever until he sits down next to the biologist in the common room or whatever, and they just chat a bit and it just shifts something. And in in my writing, in the work I do with with groups, in particular, but sometimes with individuals, I draw on this stuff. One of my, my, of my, my favorite quotes, but I run workshops on listening. I will quote musicians, sports people, visual artists, you know a lot of people who've got an understanding of this stuff, partly to show how universal the topic is, but also to help people look at this stuff through different lenses because if I talk from a coaching perspective that will reach some people but if I talk about uh, as a musician that will reach others if I talk as an improviser I'll reach others if I draw on the insights of sports people and and others then that will reach others you know it's as well as it enables me to show that this is but is universal it shows there's lots of different lenses through it and we can learn from them all and whichever lens works best for my audience then cool you use that one and it, it as it also brings energy and freshness to the communication i enjoy that as the person communicating but i also know that a lot of the audiences I talk to have heard a lot of the stuff I'm saying, at least in part before. So let's bring it alive. Just trying to, I think it's Andre Guide said um, everything that has been said has been, been, said, said, <laughs> said, has sure. been yep. said, but no one was listening. So we have <laughs> yep. to say it all again. And I think you have to say it all again and, and say it in a fresh way because that at some level enables people to think that it's new. And you get their attention, and you you get round the boredom.
0: So, we'll listen. We're nearly out of time here. Can we just close out with the do three things part of this podcast, which will be our ending? You have to give three simple pieces of advice to a young person making their way in the world, either as perhaps a coach or as a creative or or whatever. It doesn't really matter. What uh, three things would you like to bestow as, as pointers, let's call it? I think the sort of foundation
1: for me is what we've just been saying. Try things, experiment, have side projects, you know, get stuff moving and out into the world, whatever it is. Uh, and as you do that, three things. One, talk to people about your work and theirs. It's the cross-fertilization piece, D- discover their ideas, discover them, connect with them, connect with their ideas. The, the least that will happen is you'll find yourself getting clearer about your own stuff because as you talk it out, you catch yourself being succinct and insightful. I think the second thing is I regard the, a lot of the work I do as a provocation rather than a product. I'm putting stuff out that may not be right, and I'll find out from other people's response. If I wait till it's right, I'll probably be dead. (laughs) Okay. And the third thing is, if you're like me and you have a lot of ideas about what you might do, prioritize hard and follow the energy. You could always do the other stuff next month, but commit and do something wholeheartedly now because it is just so easy if you have quite a fertile imagination to have more ideas than you could possibly do, so just pick one and pick the one which excites you. Where the energy. is. I love is. that. I
0: love follow the energy because I think that's so so crucial. When you see people light up, when you see them connect, that's the open door.
1: And it goes back to what we said earlier. You know, you might actually enjoy it, and that's not worth. That's not. That's not a small thing.
0: Uh, no, gosh, enjoy my life.
1: <laughs> Radical stuff.
0: Fantastic. So, Stephen, listen, thank you very much. We are out of time. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, we've put some links below uh, on how they can connect with you. Uh, So please, those of you listening who want to find out more about Stephen, read some of his blogs. You can look in the links below. Uh, As we said earlier, any uh, jazz musicians (laughs) out there (laughs) looking for someone to play with, drop Stephen a line. And Stephen, thanks very much indeed for coming on Six Before Breakfast. Really appreciate the time you've given us. My pleasure. Thank you for listening and hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you make a living by being creative and talented or manage and coach those who do, then join our community of interest to see and hear more from like-minded people and meet some friends you might not yet know. The ICD supports the development of more caring, relevant and effective coaching and mentoring for everyone who works in the creative industries. To stay part of the conversation, you can visit us online at our LinkedIn group and Facebook page, or listen to more episodes from the 6 Before Breakfast podcast.